welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. What are you most afraid will happen when you stand before God? Some imagine him replaying all their sins on a big screen for all to see. The reality is simpler and much more effective. Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series Greater Love, True Religion with this message entitled God's Judgment, which covers Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 to 46. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Well, good morning. If you've looked at your bulletin at all, you've probably had a collective internal uh uh-oh. I am not Bob Cargo. Uh, Bob Cargo was the guy who was supposed to preach this morning, uh, but this week he came down with an intestinal bacterial infection. And on Friday night, uh, he tried to fight through it, but he basically had to pull the plug. So you get me. And that means two things off the bat. First, this sermon is not necessarily going to fit as perfectly into our series as Bob's would have. Uh, It also means that all those promises that Jeff and I made about how that specific application on the po- how we care for the poor was gonna come today, that's not gonna happen for me. Uh, I'm not equipped for that. So what I would really encourage you to do is tonight, make sure you come to the panel. Uh, those are questions that uh, Brian Fickert and, and I think it's Stephen Duncan, I might be saying that wrong, I'm sorry. Uh, he's going, they're gonna be speaking to together, so I'd really encourage you to go. Now here's the good news. The good news is we're going to hear from Jesus' word. And while I may be weak, and this is not what I planned, Jesus is strong, and apparently this is what he planned. And so he has something for us to hear this morning. Our text today is Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. And as you turn there, I just want to lay out for you the stage. Jesus has been telling this series of parables of servants and masters, of virgins and bridegrooms, of employers who give their employees their own money to invest, and each one has the same theme and the same message, and it is this. God is coming, and there will be a day when we will all be held to account, and it is going to come on a day when we do not expect it. Wake up, be ready, because the day approaches. And when you turn to verse 31, suddenly all the metaphor and all the parable, it dissolves into something real and tangible and solid. Because what we find in this text, it's not a parable. It's the day itself. And it asks us this question, when this day comes, will you and I be ready? Here's what it says, read with me now. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. 
I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when, when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then Jesus will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, we come this morning, Lord, hungry for a feast, as Randy said earlier. Lord, a feast that you delight to provide. And Lord, I, I thank you that I'm not as prepared or as well-prepped as I like to be, Lord, that I'm not in control and I feel a weakness that is always there, but Lord, today I feel much more acutely than normal. And Lord, I thank you for it because that's where your power is made perfect. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray, take this text, take your words, and bring them crashing to life in our hearts and in our minds. May we leave this place knowing you and loving you more than when we came in. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. It helps to know the end. When I was a kid, I was always really into science fiction, and one of my favorite childhood books was this science fiction book by Orson Scott Card called Ender's Game. It's the story of a world a lot like ours, except for this one detail. It has come to the very brink of extinction and just barely survived. An unknown enemy from an unknown planet has attacked them. And for some reason, at the very last moment, right when it seemed as though victory was theirs, they stopped. And everyone on earth is living in fear that those people, those enemies, that planet, they are going to come back, and when they do, they will be destroyed. And so they are investing everything they have in finding this enemy and preparing themselves, not just to defend themselves against the enemy, but to find their planet and destroy it before they can come back and do the same to them. And they are investing every resource they have, including their children, because they're looking for someone who can lead them in the invasion to come. Someone brilliant, someone who is able to think a hundred moves ahead of his opponent, someone who will be empathetic enough with the enemy that he will guess what they're going to do before they do it and they think they found that person in Ender Wiggins, a young boy 
who is brilliant, who is able to beat you in chess before you have moved any pieces. He knows already exactly how he's going to bring you down. Someone who whenever they throw a test at him, he always seems to find a way to win. He may be outnumbered, he may be handicapped, but he'll find your weakness and he'll exploit it and he will conquer. And so finally they bring Ender Wiggins to a final simulation, a test a simulation of that final invasion to see if he really has what it takes to lead their troops to destroy that planet, and they give him an armada of ships to command, and one of those ships has a weapon on it that is designed that when it gets in range and a button is pressed, a weapon designed to destroy that planet in a second. And so Ender throws himself into this test the same way he has thrown himself into everyone that comes before and he takes all the ships that he's been given and he begins to use them as a shield, sacrificing one after another, all of them so that that one ship with that one weapon can get just close enough and when it does, he presses the button and the weapon fires and the planet explodes and the simulation ends and Ender begins to celebrate until he turns around and he realizes that the adults in the room are celebrating, but in a very different way than he is. The way you do after not a simulated war is won, but after a real one has been won. And he realizes in that moment that they had lied to him, that all those ships that he'd been sacrificing, those were real ships, with real men and real women inside, that he had just sent to their deaths. That when he pressed that button, he didn't just destroy the idea of a planet, he destroyed the thing itself with billions upon billions of inhabitants and all of them were gone and the blood was on his hands. And they had lied to him because they were afraid if he knew the truth, he would not make the decisions that he had made. Jesus, in Matthew 25, he says, I love my people too much to put them in a position like that. I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to walk through this life with all of its busyness and to think that there are other things that matter more than the things that are precious to me. I don't want you to be blinded by this world to thinking that what this life is about is accumulating things for yourself. I want you to see the end, the day that is coming so that you would not be caught unawares. Because Jesus says that there will be a day in space and in time and in history when Jesus himself, the Son of Man, he will descend in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And the one who appears as a servant now, the one who is about to go to his crucifixion, the one who has not yet been raised, that Jesus will come in a glory that will cause all the nations, all of humanity, Billions upon billions of people from every tribe and language and people and tongue, from every age and every century, every person who ever graced this earth, all of them will fall on their faces and in that moment say, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, when this day comes, you will make no more decisions, 
but decisions are going to be made for you. And they will not be undone. He says to those who are his sheep, blessed are you by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And then he says to the ones who are not his own, depart from me, you cursed. Jesus is saying what all the parables that came before this have been saying. Wake up. See this day. The day you are in right now in light of the one that is going to come. This is going to be a day when everything that we have talked about here at Perimeter these past two weeks, the heart of God for the poor, the commands of God concerning the poor, all of them are going to come crashing into focus because it is the theme that runs down the center of this passage. And it's a day that for God's people is not gonna be a day of fear. It's not gonna be a day of sorrow. It's gonna be a day of incredible joy because the blessing that we have received from Jesus now, that we are his sheep, the ones that he died for, the ones he has claimed for himself, that blessing It's a blessing that on this day you and I will receive in full. In verse 34, he says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. A couple years ago, I went on a mission trip to Haiti with a bunch of high school students And when we landed our plane, it was immediately apparent to everybody on that trip that we were not in Kansas anymore. Everything was different. There was mile upon mile of poverty, the kind of poverty we had never seen. Electricity was something that was there sometimes, but not at others, you couldn't depend on it. Water was something that could run out, and even when you had it, you couldn't drink it. Air conditioning was a memory of the distant past. And there were bugs that carried diseases that we were not used to and that required us to wear a whole bunch of insect repellent that probably causes cancer, but we soaked ourselves in it. But what was interesting to me was the conversation that I had with every kid throughout that trip, and this one thing kept coming up. I never knew how blessed we were. And what they meant was this. They knew that for them, That trip, it was a momentary thing. That as uncomfortable as it was, as difficult for them as it was, as far from home as it was, there was going to be a moment at the end of that week when they walked back into an airport and they climbed into a plane and then they would go home. Jesus in this text is saying what is true on that trip is even truer on this day. Because this is the day my sheep come home. This is the day the ones that my father so loved that he prepared a kingdom for them from before the very foundation of the world. The father who so loved you that he sent me to die for you. The father who has claimed you for himself and seized you by his spirit. That father who even now holds you, 
who says to you that while you still live as aliens and strangers in this world, while you still live in a land of tears where there is sin and temptation, all of those things are but a momentary affliction that will dissolve away in a blaze of glory that will consume everything that we see. And we will find ourselves hearing the voice of Jesus in glory saying, come you who are blessed. Inherit the kingdom that was promised to you. Not because of things you have done, but because my Father delighted to give it. And he gives us this blessing for an unexpected reason. You see it in these verses, verses 35 to 40. He says, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when, when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly as I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus says on this day you'll be blessed because you loved my little ones and in doing so you loved me. Now, if you're like me, what immediately begins to run through your mind is all these feelings of guilt. And that question of, well, have, have I done this? Have I loved Jesus' little ones? Have I cared for the poor and the hungry and the needy and the naked? And there's this little bitty part of us that goes, is Jesus saying that the blessing we receive on that day is due to something that we have to accomplish, and if we don't, then we are left outside. And I would say to you that if that is what you were thinking, you've missed Jesus' heart. Because notice some things about this text. First, what is the one thing that you and I, we are all so afraid, will come up on that day, and what is the one thing Jesus does not mention? He doesn't mention your sin. Did you notice that? Jesus is looking out on this sea of people, billions upon billions, that he has claimed as his own, and he does not mention the sin of a single one. He doesn't say the sin of a single one. This is not a day when you're going to have marched before your eyes a litany of your failures and Jesus is going to shame you and only after that shame will he finally accept you. This is the day that you realize in full that when Jesus said you are forgiven, he meant it. When Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, it wasn't some emotive cry, it wasn't hyperbole, it was the language of accomplished fact. And you and I, though our sins were like scarlet, he has washed them as white as snow. This is what it is to stand, not in your own righteousness and not in your own work, but instead in the perfect righteousness, the perfect work of Jesus Christ, as those for whom he has shed his own blood. And the news just gets better. 
In the parables before this, that question has been coming up of what does faithfulness actually look like? If God has entrusted us with certain things and he expects a certain return, what, what is that return? And Jesus says, here's, here's faithfulness. And it's not what you expect. He says, it's not that you lead thousands of people to Christ, though Jesus loves that. It's not that you overcame your addiction to alcohol, though Jesus loves that. It's not that you start some charity in sub-Saharan Africa that feeds thousands of children, though Jesus certainly loves that, and this text tells you that he does. But what is the thing that Jesus brings up? It is common, everyday faithfulness in small places with small people. It's every time you saw someone who was hungry and you fed them. It's every time you saw someone who was naked and cold and you covered them with your coat. It's every time you saw someone who was sick and you went to their bedside and you sat and you cried and you prayed for them and you didn't even think it did much good. Jesus looks at all of those and says that. That's the faithfulness that I love. And here's the tenderness of Jesus the part that makes my heart sing when I read this passage, the things Jesus brings up on that day, it's things that you and I won't even remember having done. Did you catch what the sheep said? Jesus, when did we do this? Jesus says, you don't remember, but I do. I remember every time you got up in the middle of the night to feed a crying child. I remember every kind word spoken to a bruised heart. I remember every time you sacrifice for someone who is in need, and I remember them so deeply and so acutely because I was there. Notice what he says in verse 45. As you did it to the least of these, so you also did it to me. On that day, we are going to look back at our lives and see a harvest of righteousness and of peace that we did not even know was there, but Jesus created in us. On that day, Jesus is going to honor us, not because we earned his grace, but he's going to honor us for the very works he created in us through his grace. And what that day says to this day is that even if you walk into your job tomorrow and your job is gone, Even if you go to the doctor's office this week and you find that the cancer is back, even if all the religious freedoms that we so love in this country evaporate and we become like so many other places in the world where to claim the name of Christ is to risk your life and to risk your family, what that day says to this day is you don't need to be afraid because you stand among the blessed who in this life will have affliction but one day Jesus will bring you home. What that day says to this day is even if you feel like you are drowning in guilt and all the world would look at you and say there is someone that could not be saved because they have done things that cannot even be named, what that day says to this day is the blood of Christ is sufficient for every single one. What that day says to this day is that to Jesus there are no small and insignificant people. 
He sees everything done for one of the least of these and he loves it because he was there. And with that day, it says to this day, is that the poor matter. They may not be precious to the world, but they are precious to Jesus. Notice that that's the fruit. That's the fruit of trust in Christ that separates the sheep from the goats. And if we have a Savior who is so kind and tender that he would honor us and bless us for the small things, the fruit of a righteousness he himself created in us, why would we not join him in pursuing the great ones as well? Why would we not lean our shoulder against the very evils that Jesus so hates, the systems and the practices that not only create poverty but perpetuate it? Why would we not expend everything that we have to see the ones that Jesus so loves that he says to you that when you look into the eyes of the poor, you see me staring back? This is a glorious day. But Jesus doesn't stop there. And part of me kind of wishes he would. Because Jesus says, this day, for my people, it will be a day of great joy, but for those who are not, this day is going to be one of incredible sorrow. Because while my sheep have received an extravagant blessing, the ones who are not my own, they will hear an irrevocable curse. He says in verse 41, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for you by the prepared for the devil and his angels. That makes me uncomfortable. You know, the Jesus of my preference is a much tamer Jesus. But what Jesus says here is that not only is hell real, Jesus says, I'm the one who's going to send you there. That's the clear meaning of that text. We may not like that. Our culture may reject it. But we have it here from the lips of Jesus himself. The same one who says to his sheep, come to me who are blessed, he will say to those who are not, depart from me, you cursed. And here's the tragedy. Do you see the contrast between verse 34 and verse 41? In verse 34, he says, it is my Father who has blessed you. My Father who before the foundations of the world prepared a kingdom specifically for you. You are saved by his grace and his grace alone and nothing you have done. But what does he say in verse 41? He says, depart from me, not you cursed by my Father. He says, depart from me, you cursed. Into the fire prepared, not for you, but for the devil and his angels. Jesus, if I understand him rightly, he is saying this. This was not prepared for you, but you chose this. It was what you wanted. It's the fruit of a heart that all its life has said, not your will, but mine be done. And on this day, 
This is the moment when God says to you, all right, your will be done. Depart. And it is a choice that we make because of hearts that are so set against this creator. And it is revealed, Jesus says, in two ways. The first one is that we reject Jesus and his work. You see it here clearly in this text. Look at verses 42 to 44. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then notice the response. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister to you? They don't say, Father, forgive me. They don't stand there in the glory of Jesus, seeing him as he is, and say, Jesus, we're so sorry we missed it. What do they say? When did we not? It's the cry of hearts that have never seen their own depravity of those who think that on that day that the thing that is going to separate them from all the rest is the works that they have done. And you can hear that faint hint of accusation, can't you? Jesus, if you just told us, if you had just made it clear what you wanted us to do and where you wanted us to go, I mean, we've done all the other things. We go to church, we read the Bible, if you'd just shown us your glory as we see it right now, we would have done whatever you asked. This isn't our fault. It's yours. And Jesus says, your sin is so much worse than you know. He says, you didn't just reject me in my work, you rejected my little ones and you rejected me with them because as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. Jesus could have brought up any number of sins at this moment. He's got all of humanity from all time standing in front of him, so I'm sure he could think of a few. There might be a couple murderers out there and some adultery and some theft and some embezzlement. Jesus doesn't bring that up. Here's what he does bring up. He says, I hold you accountable not just for what you've done. I hold you to account for the things you have left undone. Every hungry belly that you passed by and did not fill. Every naked back of one who was cold that you did not cover. Every prisoner who sat in a cell by themselves and wondered where their hope would be found and you didn't take the time to visit. I hold you to account for every single one. You have broken not just the first commandment in that you did not love God, but you have broken the second, you did not love your neighbor. This is what it is to stand in front of Jesus cloaked not in his righteousness but your own. 
to have all the works that you thought set you apart suddenly dissolve into ashes and dust in the presence of one who is holy, holy, holy. And to realize that there is an abyss opening beneath your feet of sin you did not even know was there because Jesus says every hungry belly, every naked back, every person who is sick, every stranger and refugee that you turned away, all of them cry out against you. And what you did not do for them, you did not do for me. For those who are not Christ's sheep, this is going to be a day of incredible sorrow. In 2011, a man named Harold Camping became something of a media laughingstock because he predicted, not just once, but twice, that he knew the date when Jesus was coming back. And in fact, this wasn't his first attempt at this. He tried in 1994 as well and failed on that occasion also. But on these dates, he thought that he had read the Bible clearly and he had seen these numerical signs that told him when Jesus was going to come back. Never mind that Jesus literally says, you can't know this. He thought he'd figured it out. And he was so sure that he put up billboards all across the country telling people that Jesus is coming, the day is here. He announced it on the airwaves. He had his followers going around passing out pamphlets. But when that those days, both of them, actually all three of them, came and went, and nothing happened, just silence, no Jesus, no glory, no judgment day, just people laughing and hosting rapture parties and comedians mocking him on late night television, Harold Camping finally came to the conclusion he should have come to a long time ago that he had not just made a mistake, but he had been in sin because he had tried to peer into something Jesus told him he could not do. And I gotta confess with you, in my heart, and my pride, it is really easy for me to look at Harold Camping and say, that's dumb. But I will say one thing in his defense. At least he took the reality of this day seriously. Because it's coming. Jesus is going to come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he will say to his people, come to me you who are blessed. And he will say to those who are not, depart from me you cursed. And on that day, you will no longer make decisions, but decisions will be made for you and they will not be undone. But here... Here's why I think this text is so full of grace. Jesus tells us of that day on this one so that you and I, we would not be caught unaware. He tells us of that day on this one so that at his people we would come to rest and know how secure we are in his hands but also that we would invest ourselves in the things that truly matter and are precious to him, caring for the very least of these. He tells us of that day on this one so that those who are not yet in Christ and those who have not yet seen that their only hope is found in the arms of another who would lay down his life for them, that they would turn and they would see and they would know, not just in word and not just in thought, but in reality, the arms of the one who would make them whole. 
It's an invitation. It's a gift. It's a gift to grab a hold of and to seize a hold of so that that day for you would not be a day of sorrow but a day of incredible joy. The shepherd is coming and may he come quickly. Lord Jesus, we pray this this morning, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would open our eyes and our ears wide to you and Lord, that in every way you would make us those who are awake and alive to you so that we would see this day in light of the one to come. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.